I want to welcome you. Uh, you know, I'm just extremely excited uh, to be here this morning. We're continuing in our series uh, called Loving Logic. Uh, I think it's a really helpful series in this generation that we live in. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the logic of truth, as Sherry mentioned a moment ago. Uh, I want to jump right in, and then I'm going to give you a little context about where we've been coming from in this series. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and it says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so the author of this letter to the church at Colossae, his name is Paul, or Paul the Apostle, and he wrote this letter to encourage the people in Colossae to not be taken captive, to not be deceived, that there's, there's things that are being said, there's teachings that are deceptive, and, and we need to not find ourselves enthralled or captivated by those teachings because they're not according to Christ. And so in this series, our goal and if you'll go back and listen to all of the uh, messages in this series, you'll hear us striving towards this goal. Our goal is to be informed and equipped to hold fast to and declare biblical truth in a loving and logical way. And, and so we know that as members of the church, as, as people who follow Jesus, as, as disciples of Jesus, in other words, students of Jesus, that we're called to love like Jesus. And so we love to lead with love. We really want to make sure that people understand that they're loved before they understand really anything else. But at the same time, we have a faith that is very logical. And that logic which is the way ultimately that you process through thoughts and ideas, that logic leads us to conclusions or philosophies or views on how we believe about life and, and our faith. And, and our faith is reasonable. If you didn't know that, you know, some of you young guys that are here, uh, sitting here listening to this message, sometimes you'll hear things that you're like, man, that just sounds a little sideways. That sounds kind of hard to believe. And, and I just want to tell you, for, as somebody who also found these things that I'm teaching and preaching today and throughout this series, as once in my life I found them hard to believe, now I understand how reasonable our faith is. It's actually very logical. And so we can be not only loving, but we can also be very logical. And if you'll go back and, and listen to the rest of the series, uh, you can go to northwood.church slash podcast, and you can pull up all of the podcasts from all of the locations and listen to any of the weeks that you'd like to listen to to kind of catch back up on this. But what you'll have heard is that there are others who would suggest that our faith is not logical and even that our faith is not loving. And there's this category of people that we spoke about called progressive Christians. And progressive Christians, uh, as we walk through the first couple weeks of this series, we identified some of the views that they hold to, and we found that really they're not holding to what we understand to be as historical Christian views, views that the church has held onto for thousands of years that's been generally accepted as true, as reliable, as, as the right way of living as followers of Jesus. That's a historical Christianity, and progressive Christians say, no, we need to progress past that and abandon those things. And, and what we unfolded in, for you over the last couple of weeks is that these views are really not biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, progressive Christians hold to views that we believe as historical Christians are error at best, error at best. And I'm going to use a word that we don't throw around here a lot at Northwood Church because, you know, a lot of people overuse it, but it's heresy at worst. Now, I want to clarify what heresy is. Heresy is any teaching that deviates from the historical Christian orthodoxies or doctrines of the faith, things that have been held on to, that have been believed about the faith for thousands of years, and, and anything that deviates too far from that, especially in relationship to essential doctrines, not the non-essentials, but more the essentials, will be categorized as, as heresy, and progressive Christians have a lot of essential views that deviate from historical orthodoxy. So we would consider a lot of this heresy. As a matter of fact, they reject many of the historical doctrines of God that we believe, the doctrines of Jesus Christ as Savior, but also Jesus as God. And they also reject 
the way that we understand how Jesus deals with our sin nature and, and ultimately the fact that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. They will reject many of these truths, many of these doctrines that we believe. And so what we've been doing is we've been examining some of these statements from a very really prominent progressive thought leader named Philip Goley in his book, If the Church Were Christian. He's got 10 statements, almost like the Ten Commandments of Progression Christianity, if you will. And, uh, and we've been cracking those things open. And I just want to let you know that we don't agree with those statements. And I'm actually going to lay out two more of those very progressive Christian statements from his book today. And before I present them to you, I just want to make sure that I'm clear. We don't agree with these statements. Now, I do want to make sure that you understand that we do find some credibility, and, and we're going to explore that. And so today's statements are these. One, gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Now, at first glance, we're like, yeah, gracious behavior is great. Absolutely, that's wonderful. We should be gracious people. I want to acknowledge that. But it's not necessarily more important than right belief. It's not at all more important actually, and I'm going to crack that open throughout this message. Then two, inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. Now again, I want to, I want to kind of affirm, I love, I'm inquisitive. I ask a lot of questions. And, and we told you guys over the last couple of weeks, look, Northwood Church wants to be a safe place for you to ask hard questions. And you know what's incredible? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been gathering in our groups environments, uh, which meet on Sundays, and we've got some others that are kind of spread out in other areas. And, um, and in those group settings, uh, we have had some people ask some hard questions, that, that actually do come up against technically what we're teaching and believe. And you know what? We love it. We embrace it. We're like, let's talk about it. Great. Thanks for asking. Those are hard questions. You're right. I'm glad we're wrestling with this as a community. And so I do want to suggest that inviting questions is good, but it's not more important than supplying answers because if there is something that's answerable with a truth that matters, we should supply answers. And, and these progressive Christian statements want to diminish supplying answers, want to diminish the idea of the importance of right belief, all in the name of, of grace and inquisitiveness, right? They would suggest that uh, asserting that there's any truth claim is not helpful. And they would maybe even say, you know, I don't, I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what you believe. And you know what? Can I just, just tell you some, some, some of my dirty laundry? Before I was a Christian... I said the exact same thing because I was very progressive in, in my thinking around spirituality, around the philosophies that I was exploring. Man, I was into Eastern mysticism type stuff. I mean, I have friends that were doing weird stuff. And, and I'll say this, it's, it's reasonable that, that when you don't believe the claims that we believe as a, as a Christian community, that you would have doubts about them and that you would resist them. And so I want to empathize with the progressive Christian real quick. I get it. I know why you would resist these things that we say are true. And more so, I'll tell you where else I want to empathize. Many, many Christians have given progressive Christians bad experiences when those Christians who were well-meaning began to supply answers and tell people what to believe in a very ungracious way. That's part of my story. I rejected Christianity for years. I was like, get that garbage out of my face. If that's how Christians are, I don't want anything to do with it. If, if, if the Jesus that you're telling me about has this kind of crew following him, I'm, I'm not interested in Jesus. I wasn't interested in that kind of attitude the, the, the kind of arrogance that I was experiencing. And I got that from a lot of places. And I think this is why First Peter, uh, in First Peter, the apostle uh, Peter, who was somebody that knew Jesus very closely, he wrote this, and it's so important. And, and, and ultimately, it's for us today. It wasn't just for the people he was writing to then. He says, he tells us to give reason for the hope that we have or the faith that we have. That word reason meaning apologia in the Greek. That's where we get our modern word apologetics for, which is kind of what this series is based off of. We're giving a reason, a logic for what we believe. He says, but give that reason with gentleness and respect. And I've seen so many people telling 
Well, let's just speak about the way that I received it. So many people were telling me what to believe and how to believe, but they weren't doing it with gentleness and they weren't doing it respect. And so we must empathize with that experience. This is the very loving side of this logical conversation that we're having. And I do need to say this, though. I was running with a lot of people that were saying things that were very gracious to me. Like, I didn't believe in Jesus. I rejected the Bible, and they were very kind people. I mean, I had, I, they were family. Like, my family were my friends, and they loved me in the best way they knew how very well, and they affirmed me. They built me up. They, we, they asked inquisitive questions, right? They were very gracious. But just because something is said graciously doesn't mean it's true. I was told so many things that were lies, so many beliefs that I began to adopt as a young man were lies. And you know what my loving, gracious friends did? They affirmed me in those lies. Man, that's, that's creative. That's creative thinking. No, that's not creative thinking. That's deception. I was deceived. We were deceived together, but we were gracious with one another. Now, also, just because something is said ungraciously doesn't mean it's not true. And, and so this problem that we have with the logic of the statements that's offered is that just because somebody isn't being gracious doesn't mean that they don't have right belief. It just means that they're not living rightly out of their belief. Does that make sense? And, and so just because somebody's maybe a little harsh, a little lacking some gentleness, a little disrespectful even at times, it doesn't make what they're saying wrong. It just means that they're a jerk. And they haven't gotten a full revelation of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we don't want to be jerks, right? We want to be lovingly logical. And so that's what this series is geared towards. Now, we know that ungracious behavior can lead to a resistance of truth. I resisted truth because there were so many ungracious, unloving people telling me the truth. But I also want to say this. I had a deceived heart. I had a hardened heart. It wasn't just the way that people came to me. I resisted truth because I had a sin problem. I had a heart condition where I was not willing to hear these hard truths because these hard truths were confronting these deep parts of who I was and how I was living, and I wasn't interested in that. It didn't matter if somebody would have told me graciously. I was hard-hearted. And so whether a progressive Christian has experienced maybe unloving, you know, truth uh, people bringing unloving truth to them, or they have just hard-heartedness and, and just a resistance towards these things that are hard truths. For whatever reason, we see them resisting truth claims and leaning into what I would consider to be a counterfeit grace. Because the only true grace that I know is the grace that's brought through the truth that we're going to be talking about today. Any other grace is simply maybe the, the characteristic of gentleness or kindness. But true grace True grace comes from a higher source. And, and so the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear on this matter that there is grace and truth, and both are important. And these two progressive Christian statements, they, they represent the skepticism toward any truth claims. And because historical Christians present the Bible to be true, right? Like if I was to ask you, well, do, you, do you really think the Bible's true? As a, if you were like a, a Christian who thought the way that most historical Christians think, you'd be like, absolutely. It's like an obvious, it's a given, right? And because we believe that way, progressive Christians have a skepticism towards the Bible. And so we're going to be exploring a little bit of that today as well. Now, one of the biggest conflicts between progressive Christians, uh, Christians and historical Christians, and by the way, we call them progressive Christians uh, they call themselves progressive Christians. I would say that if they don't hold to historical Christian views, if they don't hold to the claims of Christ, there is a curiosity in my mind about why they would call themselves Christians because people who call themselves Christians suggest that they believe Christ, but they're rejecting and resisting the claims of the biblical Christ. And so to even call yourself a progressive Christian, it doesn't necessarily resonate as logical with me. I'm like, it, does, it doesn't seem reasonable to say that, but for the sake of you know, just empathizing and, and using the language that they would use for themselves, we'll call them progressive Christians. And, and so progressive Christians and historical Christians are at, in conflict over whether or not the Bible is true. 
whether or not the Bible is relevant or whether or not the Bible is authoritative in a person's life. And I want to refer to a uh, specific progressive Christian uh, that, again, I, I don't necessarily, when we share these, I don't recommend that you go follow them or, or search them out. I do. I, I just, you know, I'm real grounded in my faith, and, and, and I also am responsible for teaching you this, and so uh, this doesn't necessarily affect me. But it, it's, it's really, you know, effective for some people that get into this. So I'm going to present this, and, uh, and then you do with it what you will. But Derek the Heretic, <laughs> that's his name, by the way. I didn't call him that. Uh, your favorite Deretic, <laughs> Derek the Heretic, that's his name. He said, the Bible is no more divinely inspired than you or me. It's an anthology or a, just a collection of people's experiences of the divine and the world. By the way, when you hear that kind of language, a lot of times people are speaking from a very progressive view. Sure, let's glean truth and wisdom from the scriptures or let's gather some the things that are meaningful to us that, that we find value in. But the issue is when the author's perspectives are elevated to disprove the validity of our own. And so what Derek the heretic is saying is that the Bible is not authoritative and it's no more valid than I deem it to be based on my experiences, my beliefs, my perspectives. And if anything in the Bible that's written by just some guy who wrote it, right, if anything in the Bible comes against what I've already deemed to be true about life and true about myself, then I just reject that and I just take it as that guy's opinion. That's not the way to read the Bible. That's not a proper interpretation of the scriptures. I want to look at somebody else. This is someone who used to be a progressive Christian, spent years in that camp, and has come out of that realizing the error of her way and the deception that she'd fallen for. Her name is Alyssa Childers. She wrote a book called Another Gospel, which is a really uh, provocative name because what she's saying is it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a whole nother gospel, okay? And so she's teaching us about her experiences and what we're to understand about the contrast between progressive Christianity and historical Christianity. And in it, she says this, the progressive Christians view, uh, progressive Christians view the Bible as a record of what people believed about God in the times and places in which they lived rather than the inspired and authoritative word of God. So she's just confirming what Derek the heretic said right then. She said it's a collection of experiences, not a divinely God-inspired authoritative text. And she goes on, it's not uncommon for a progressive Christian to express disagreement with a biblical writer or to reject the passages they find helpful. Now this, this next part is so intriguing. In fact, progressive leader, and she names a guy who we actually dealt with uh, a couple weeks ago and, and Generally, we refer to him as somebody who's teaching heresy. He's teaching lies. Uh, she says, progressive leader Richard Rohr encourages Christians to ignore, to deny, and even openly oppose scriptures that are, and here's where some categories get introduced, imperialistic, right? Almost um, colonialist, militant, right? It's got this oppressive kind of connotation to it. Punitive, the idea that there would be some sort of penalty for us being in a state of sin. Exclusionary, anything other than inclusive. If, if, if the teaching is anything but all-inclusive, if, it, if it's exclusionary, then reject it. Or tribal, meaning that there's a group of people who are knit together by certain things that are common rather than this all-inclusive oneness of people. But the Bible teaches us that while Jesus is very inclusive, he's in exclusively inclusive. He is the way. The Bible teaches us that there is a penalty for sin and death. The Bible teaches us many things that progressive Christians reject, resist, and now ignore or deny and even openly oppose, oftentimes in a very militaristic fashion. If you go, go look at Derek the Heretic, man, he's very antagonistic. Like, he's just like, anything I can do to destabilize young Christians' belief. And, and so Alyssa continues as she talks about really people who, if we were to look at it, would ultimately be considered, according to the scripture, wolves in sheep's clothing, right? It's, it's looking to devour, to, to steal sheep away from the flock, to believe this deceptive philosophy. Alyssa continues to, to talk about the consequence of this. She says this matters because if we give ourselves permission to deny or ignore the scriptures, 
that don't fit into our preconceived ideas about who God is and how he acts in the world, we will have effectively transferred the authority for truth from the Bible to our own thoughts, our own feelings, and our own preferences. See, the conflict that historical Christians like Alyssa Childers is, like we are, and that progressive Christians have, the conflict is ultimately what is or who is the authority. That's where it all comes down to at the end of the day. This is an issue of authority. Who is sovereign? Am I self-sovereign or is there a sovereign being above me? And this is, when we believe these progressive claims, this is the epitome of deception. When we ignore or deny the scripture, we are left with only human reason. And so we've got to ask this big question, what is truth? What is truth? And many people have asked this question throughout the years. As a matter of fact, we're going to go back uh, to uh, the book of John, chapter 18, and we see that Jesus is on trial. He's getting ready to go Well, we later find that he's going to be executed on a cross. But before that, he's he's on trial for his claims of him being authoritative, ultimately. He's claiming that he has authority all throughout the Scripture. And and you have the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and then ultimately the Roman government saying, who has the authority? And they bring him before this kangaroo court, meaning they really already made their mind up about you know, what the outcome was going to be. And he's talking to the governor of uh, the Judean province uh, in Israel, which is ultimately where Jerusalem is, and now it's a Roman province. And, and he says, I've come into the world, this is Jesus speaking, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's paralleling himself with the truth. In other words, I'm the truth. Jesus speaking, right? And Pontius Pilate replies to him, what is truth? That's the question on the agenda. What is truth? As Jesus, who we as historical Christians understand to be the way, the truth, and the life, as Jesus, the truth himself, is standing before Pilate, Pilate misses it completely. Now, whether he denies it, ignores it, or openly opposes it, like Richard Rohr suggests we should do, I can't say. I can't judge his motivations. I don't know how he missed it, but he missed the truth standing in front of him. And some of you may be asking the same question sincerely, maybe having missed that Jesus is the truth, and we'll get there, but what is truth? What is truth? I know I've asked that question, and even now in this season of my walk, I've been walking with the Lord for 15 years, and I still am parsing through how to believe what is truth. I'm, I'm zeroing in on more clarity, and, 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 and I'm getting more you know, even convicted about what I believe, but at the same time, it's like, okay, how does this bear witness with what I understand to be true? And so let's take a minute, if we're asking the question, what is truth, let's define truth. Truth is reality. Truth is ultimately defining what is real. What is real? The Hebrew word for truth presents this idea of firmness, constancy, that's consistency, or duration, right? So it implies that there's this everlasting or constant, right, enduring reality that can be relied upon, that can be stood upon. That's a firm foundation. It's reliable. That's truth. And if we embrace these progressive Christian ideas that suggest that truth is rigid, truth is restrictive, truth is controlling, and we elevate simply gracious behavior and inquisitiveness over truth, it's going to lead us to a place where we actually have an unstable foundation. And we begin to believe things that are not everlasting, that are not enduring. And and so, you know, how how do we think through this? Well, if you don't know me and my wife Amy, who's serving upstairs today, uh, I've I've got three kids, one on the way, but right now uh, we've got three kids in the house and and it's just alive, it's full of zeal and, and energy, and we're excited to add more zeal and energy. Pray for us, pray for us, please. Okay. And so, 
one of the things we like to do is break the tension in the house. <laughs> so we pull out some cards, right? I'm like, these kids are loving Go Fish right now. That's that season, you know? And they are whooping me. I don't know how they got so good at Go Fish. But anyway, neither here nor there. It's probably because there's less strategy. I'm just going to say that. Although Justice recently beat me at chess, and so he's six. <laughs> so when we play games with the kids, they're having a good time until they're not, right? What hap- why are they not having a good time? Well, all of a sudden, the game's not favoring them. It's not going their way. And what do they want to do? They just want to flip the board over, right? They just want to ruin everybody's game. Or at best, they're like, mm, that's not the rules. <laughs> and they start working towards changing the rules. These little jokers will literally argue with you over the rules of the game. You're like, I've been reading way longer than you, and I know what the rules say. <laughs> you get into one of those kind of back and forths, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh. And, and I'm telling them, look, guys, we can't change the rules to accommodate your feelings. The rules are the rules. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, that I'm not gracious when saying that, but the rules are the rules. And the rules are ultimately the authority of the game. The, the rules help us understand how to play the game. The rules help us understand how to win the game. And they want to go and change the rules? And it, it's not logical to do that because what happens is rules create order, but if we change the rules of the game, it leads to disorder. If everybody's playing the game by different rules, Justice is over there playing the games by his rules, and Selah's like, well, those rules don't work for me, Just. I'm playing by my rules, and I'm over here like just trying to really just finish the game, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, golly, this game's going on forever. <laughs> and they're changing rules in the middle of it. <laughs> it leads to chaos. It's illogical. And these two progressive Christian statements suggest that the rules should be flexible. That if there be something that is claimed to be true, something that's claimed to be authoritative over life, a framework for how to live and how to win, for lack of better terms, if there's claims that seem to be true, that, that feel too rigid, that feel too binding, and, and it comes up against somebody's feelings, well, they want to turn the board game over, right? They want to change the rules. And the progressive Christian might even ask, who gave you the authority to make the rules in the first place? And I'm over here like, I didn't make the rules. I'm just trying to follow them. I'm just trying to help us follow the rules. I'm just trying to help us play by what is true. I'm trying to help us understand how to win the game. Now, the reality of it is, a game is just a game. Life is not a game. Now, we love to have fun. I think God laughs a lot of times. I think, I think God gave us the capacity and the passion for experiencing fun in our lives. But life is not a game to be played. And, and so when I talk about the rule or the authority in our lives, it's a much bigger deal than whether or not we simplify the rules in Monopoly for Kids, okay? It's a much bigger consequence. As a matter of fact, we see the consequence in the scriptures because this is not new. People have always tried to change the rules. In Judges chapter 21, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. That means there was no authority. There was no rule. There was no standard. And everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And, and we would say, well, I've got law. I've got rule in my life. And you've got law. You've got rule in your life. I've got my morality, my code of conduct, right? Yeah, but if everybody's playing by different rules, if everybody has a different law, it's lawlessness. Look at a society. You can't, can't everybody live by different laws? You have literal different governing authority then. Everybody wants to be sovereign. And, and that lawlessness, according to Proverbs, though it is a way that seems right to a man, its end is the way to death. 
the scripture is very clear about us thinking that we understand what is right and what is wrong and rejecting this objective standard of truth that God has laid out for us. So we need a rule or authority for order, for life. We need a standard of truth as our authority. And the truth that we believe as Christians, historical Christians here at Northwood Church, the truth that we believe actually brings life, not death. It brings renewal. It brings wholeness. It brings healing. It brings freedom. The freedom that we look for when we try to destabilize the laws of the land, if you will, it actually leads to bondage. But when we adhere to, when we sub- submit ourselves to the authority of the, the higher rule in our lives, it actually brings liberty and freedom. It's counterintuitive. This is the upside-down kingdom. And it's beautiful. Now, this begs another question. Because I just used a word that you, you know, not everybody might be familiar with. Objective. Objective truth. The question is, is truth concrete or fluid? So I want to define truth for just a moment. This idea of truth being concrete, which is just hard or firm, right? Like, it's just kind of immovable, right? This, this truth is called objective truth. And objective truth is based on real facts and is not influenced by personal beliefs or feelings. This is a truth that comes from outside of ourselves. We didn't determine what is true. Something outside of us determined what is true. Now, this other thing is called fluid truth, maybe. Is truth fluid? That was the question. Uh, Someone might call it subjective truth. I would make an argument that if it's subjective and if it's fluid, it may not be true after all. But let me define it more specifically. Subjectivity is influenced by or based on personal beliefs or feelings rather than based on facts. Now, I say a lot of times, uh, especially in like counseling folks, like husband and wife, they're arguing with each other, right? And, uh, and, and I've been counseled in this way myself because, you know, we're not removed from an argument from time to time. <laughs> and and so, so when Amy sees something her way, but I see something my way, we have two different truths, right? And in one sense, I do have to acknowledge that her perception is currently her reality. I, I have to kind of acknowledge that in some sense. But if we were to look at her truth claim, she's always wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> oh, man. Call. If we were to look at my truth claim, the same could be said. I'm always wrong. Because even though my perception is reality, I'm not perfect. And so my truth can't be perfect especially when it's impacted by my feelings or my experience, my emotions, I'm going to have variation. I'm going to have instability. But that's not what truth is. Truth is stable, unchanging, everlasting, reliable. It's a firm foundation. And so subjectivity, while there might be an inkling of truth in it that we want to acknowledge in a loving and empathetic way, right? Don't tell your wife she's all the way wrong. (laughs) Take a lesson from me. I have learned that doesn't work. She might not be all the way right either, nor would you be. None of us are. That's why truth has to come from outside of us, because none of us are perfectly right. I want to think about gravity for just a second, to just paint this picture a little bit more clearly. Is gravity objective or subjective? Anybody want to take a guess? Objective. Good. Gravity is objective. Why? Because just because I wake up in the morning and say, you know, I don't feel like gravity today. I don't feel like gravity. I'm going to crack my skull. Because gravity is existing. It's real. It's a law. doesn't matter what my mama told me. You can do anything you want to do. You can fly, baby. No, I cannot fly. I can't fly objectively. I'm just saying it doesn't work. Now, I might be able to jump in a plane that can fly, but I personally cannot fly, gravity will hold me down. It's objective. And it's outside of ourselves. I didn't create gravity, and I don't determine whether or not gravity exists or does not exist. It simply is real. It simply exists. It's objective. That's truth. And that's the kind of truth that we've got to hold on to. 
And most progressive Christians think that everything is actually subjective or subject to interpretation. And anyone who provides concrete, objective answers, especially around the matters of life and living, around philosophy, around belief, around existence, etc., people that provide concrete, objective answers, they would call them people narrow-minded and And even more so, if that truth claim comes up against their feelings or their desires, they wholeheartedly, like Richard Rohr said, oppose it. They reject it. And they say, no, there is no standard of truth. Or they'll say, well, you can have your truth, but my truth is my truth. You do you, I'm do me. And that's the way it is. But that is subjectivity. And the most interesting thing about that progressive logic is when somebody says that there is no objective truth, my truth is my truth, they are making a very objective claim. That's a very rigid, concrete thing to say. And so the thing that they criticize historical Christians about for saying, hey, I have a rock-solid, reliable, objective truth claim, they're making their own objective claims. And that circular reasoning or what we would just consider illogical process of drawing that conclusion actually makes the, the statements that they make a whole lot less reliable. You see what we're doing here? And, and this is all, this, this whole self-defeating argument thing, people have bought into this and it's all playing out in our society today and everyone is seeking to live by their own set of rules, their own truth, and everyone's way is right in their own eyes. But those who hold to historical Christian views believe this, that we are not meant to live by our own truth. We are meant to live by a higher truth. And so the question then becomes, whose truth then do we live by? Or more specifically, where does truth come from? Where does truth come from? Well, we believe the source of truth, not one of the sources of truth, not a possible source of truth, the source of truth, not my truth, but objective truth. Truth from outside of myself. The source of truth is a perfectly true God. And now we're not going to discuss today whether there is a God, a divine, you know, intelligent designer. Uh, That's beyond this conversation right now. If you're interested in what we view about that, you can go back to YouTube, search Northwood Church, What Do You Believe?, about God. We did a whole series on uh, so many of these things, but you can hear exactly, we made a very good case for why we believe in intelligent design. And so go back and listen to that. If you do struggle with that, it's a really good case and, and I think it's worth your time. But let's just assume today that we all agree there is an intelligent designer, there is a God, an authority beyond ourselves. He exists. We believe God's truth is clearly expressed in his written word. And we also believe that God's word is the rule or authority in a Christian's life. Period. His word is real, and it's an authority, and it is true. Now, the two progressive Christian statements that we're critiquing ultimately undermine a very historical doctrine. It's the doctrine of the authority of the word of God. It's our belief about what we believe about the word of God. Now, early in my faith journey, look, I had, a, I had a miraculous encounter with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit just captured my heart. I, I surrendered my life to Jesus. It was a very real, tangible moment. It did come through the preaching of the word, actually, but I happened to be on my buddy's living room floor at 1.30 in the morning on July 13th. Uh, 2007, and man, it was, it was as real as anything I've ever experienced in my entire life, and I believed the word. But moving forward in my walk, as I dug deeper into the scriptures, I found things that were tough to swallow. Like Romans 13, for instance, for me. I was like, submit to governing authorities. Who? Submit to who? Are you serious right now? God, I know some things are for me, but not everything is for me, right? I mean, come on. You don't mean that, right? And I remember uh, I was doing some things I shouldn't have been doing that weren't submitted to governing authorities. And, and a brother, he said, look, man, and it wasn't like, like blatant or, you know, it wasn't too bad. But he said, you're the reason why we have that law in the first place, guys like you. <laughs> oh, that's, you put it that way, that's interesting. He said, why don't you just try believing the word 
for what it is, the authoritative word of God. And I prayed literally in that moment. I, I took him up on that challenge. I took God up on the challenge. And I said, God, if this is your word, it's authoritative. And I don't just mean most of it. I mean all of it. You've got to give me the faith to believe. I literally prayed that prayer. I'm telling you like a lightning bolt. Pow. My mind and heart opened up, and there was a grace to believe the word. I literally believed Romans 13, which I have resisted. I mean, it was, a, it was a miracle, and not everybody has an experience like that. You know, sometimes it's more progressive. Like, it takes time to experience that. But, but the reality of it is, is that some of us also question the authority of the word of God. And I understand that. I empathize with you, if that's you. And, and you might even be wondering about it right now. Is the Bible actually the word of God? And I just want you to know that from my experience and from what I know about truth, that is the plan of the enemy to destabilize your belief, your faith. Ultimately, that destabilizes your trust in the person and work of Jesus. It's ultimately the same plan that the enemy used in the garden when the serpent came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say that? Read Genesis just the first three chapters, you'll hear it. Did God really say that? That's always the, 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 the question that's being asked of our belief system. Did God really say that? The doctrine of the authority of the word of God matters a lot. Christianity hinges actually on the Bible being God's word. Remember we talked about in the last couple of weeks that um, these essential doctrines of the faith that progressive Christian views come up against? They're like Jenga blocks. Now, you can pull some Jenga blocks out and it's a non-essential. But you get enough of those blocks yanked out of that tower, right, and pull the wrong block, an essential block that that, that tower needs to remain its structural integrity. What happens when you pull that essential block out? The tower comes tumbling down. Well, if you pull out the authority of the Word of God, of the Christian Jenga tower, Christianity topples. It's no longer Christianity. The Bible explicitly and implicitly is required as 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 a belief. Its authority is required to be Christian. And, and so this is important that we explore this. Wayne Grudem says this. He's a, a theologian. Actually, you know, and I'll just recommend it. If you guys are interested in digging a little bit deeper into the, theology, not like, like university academic deep, but just, man, a really accessible uh, view of, of certain doctrines and, and theology, pick up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's really accessible. It's very understandable. It's very well written. And you can get it on sale at christianbook.com. I'm straight marketing right now. At christianbook.com for like 25 bucks at certain times. It's one of the best buys. I, I've given it away as gifts to young guys. I mean, it's, I've, it's helped me. It'll help you if you're interested in growing in these areas. But what, the, what he says about the authority of the scriptures is this. The authority of the scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to believe or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's huge. That's a, that's a pretty radical conclusion. And I believe that. We believe that. And it's important that we understand that it's not just the authority because we say it is, though. It's important that we understand where this authority comes from. And so we're going to ask some questions here. How do we know that the Bible is actually God's authoritative word? How do we know that the Bible is actually God's word? Now, some of you have done this work, and you're like, man, you're about to talk about the historicity of the Bible. This is going to be great. And some of you are like, I hope he's not because I'm hungry. (laughs) And we could, we could talk about the historicity of the Bible, meaning its, its, its integrity as a historical document. We could talk about the manuscript evidence. It's all wonderful um, evidence that, that really does build faith. We could talk about the archaeological evidence that all of the archaeological discoveries that are made all over the world only continue to affirm the Bible's authenticity and rely. We could talk about all that, but we're not going to. As a matter of fact, if you go back to that series, What Do You Believe About the Bible? on YouTube, Northwood Church, What Do You Believe? What do you believe about the Bible? Is that how, what, was, what do you believe about, yeah, what do you believe more specifically that part of the series is what do you believe about the Bible? But it, the series is called What Do You Believe? And you can find what we taught about those things. But today I want to teach you something that I actually have found in my own personal journey to be even the more profound way of determining that the Bible is authoritative. And uh, I'm going to give you three things. First, the Bible contains the words of Jesus in 
the Gospels. The Bible contains the words of Jesus in the Bible. Now, in the Gospels. Now, in week two, we taught that we believe Jesus is deity. He is God, right? He's the Messiah, the one who has authority to save. So we taught that. And let's just assume we all agree. Everybody, good, good. We're on the same page? Great. If we believe Jesus is God and the words and life of Jesus, our God, are in the Bible, then very simply, we believe the Bible contains the authoritative words of who? Yeah, Jesus, our God. They're authoritative. If Jesus is God, then the words in the Bible are authoritative. It's a very logical conclusion. If this, then that. So if you don't believe that Jesus' words in the Bible are authoritative, then you would have to back up and determine whether or not that you believe Jesus is God. That's a bigger question that needs to be asked and answered. Now in John chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we hear that the Word was there in the beginning, was with and was God. Now it says he. I love how John, the author of this gospel, takes the word and now personifies the word as he. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. And if you skip down to verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? The word is truth. Jesus is truth. He's grace, but he's also truth. And so when it comes to whether or not we should value right beliefs and whether or not we should value answers, Jesus did. He calls himself the truth, and he told people the truth. He did it graciously and lovingly, but not at the expense of the truth. He always told the truth. Now, the authority of the Bible rests squarely upon the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And, and many progressive Christians would say, okay, that's cool. I'll run with you there. Let's, let's go there. Jesus' words are authoritative. I only accept the words written in red, they might say. But Jesus, in his words written in red, spoke to the authority of the Old Testament as well. He himself said these things about the Old Testament. And since we believe that Jesus is God, and we believe that his words are authoritative, then we must also believe everything that he says, including those things that he says about the word of God, including that part of the scripture that many progressive Christians like to call antiquated and outdated and even oppressive, the Old Testament. We have to believe what Jesus said about the Old Testament. And that brings us to the next way that we know the Bible is actually God's word. The second way, Jesus viewed the Old Testament scriptures as the holy word of God. Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus, he's already uh, died on the cross for our sin, paid the penalty that we couldn't pay. He's already been risen from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's literally resurrected now and proved that he does have the authority, right? And he's walking in the last little while before he's going to ascend with the Father. And he's walking with some disciples down this road on this, their way to this place called Emmaus. And the disciples didn't recognize who was walking with him. And Jesus... He says this to the disciples when he decides, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to let you know who I am now. And he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Prophets being those who are in the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, the disciples were downtrodden and discouraged because Jesus was saying, I'm going to have to do this thing. And they're, they're like, no, but Jesus, don't do the thing that you're saying. And they're like, we want you here with us. Do the thing that we want you to do. And he's like, no, I've got to do the thing I've got to do. Oy. And, and, you know, they're, they're like discouraged about the whole thing. And here he is. He's like, I did the thing that I said I was going to do, which is also the thing that the prophets in the Old Testament said I was going to do. And he called them foolish. He said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and beginning with Moses, which is the Torah and the law, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He said, look at how the Father has been pointing to me all throughout the scripture. Look at the promises. Look at the prophecies. Look at the foretelling of what I would do and now what I've done. Look at them. Why haven't you believed? Why have you resisted this truth? It's authoritative. And here I am standing in resurrected flesh now proving to you that it is authoritative. 
Ray Stedman says this, we need only, read, only to read the New Testament to see that the Lord Jesus casts the mantle or covering of his authority over all of the Old Testament. Jesus' authority is over the entire Old Testament. And then he says, and by anticipation, looking forward from the Old Testament, over then all of the new. His authority covers the entirety of the Bible. Many agree that the Gospels are the word of God because Jesus's words, the words of Jesus are in them. And now we know that the Old Testament is the word of God because Jesus confirms it himself in the gospel. But how do we know that the rest of the New Testament, like Ray Stedman says, is authoritative? The, the progressive Christian, like Derek the Heretic, would have said something along the lines of, well, didn't men just write their own thoughts and ideas about what they thought Jesus meant? How is that authoritative? How are men's opinions supposed to be an authority in my life? That's what Derek the Heretic was suggesting. And that's what progressive Christians teach. Well, this is the other way that we know, in the third and last way as we move towards closing, that the Bible is actually God's word. The words the apostles wrote in the New Testament are founded on the authority of Jesus. The apostles, the New Testament authors. The words they literally wrote, the words that we have in our Bible, the pages of your Bible, they wrote them on the authority of Jesus. Let me explain. Matthew chapter 28, it says this. Um, after, again, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he's raised to life. He went and saw uh, those disciples on the road to Emmaus, presented himself before hundreds of other eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus, right? By the way, eyewitnesses accounts is a great way also uh, to affirm the authority of the Bible. And and after his death and resurrection, and right before he's about to go to sit at the right hand of the Father, ascend on high, he's giving some last words to his disciples, to the church. And he came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In other words, go, therefore, in my authority. And the way that we see that, I'm not just inserting that in there to take liberty in this interpretation because it doesn't actually say go in my authority, is that Jesus' authority is sealed on us through his Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1, which I don't have on the screen, but you can go look at it later, the Holy Spirit came and the New Testament church was empowered by the Spirit and they began to witness to the ends of the earth starting in Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and they went in the authority of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. The authority of the apostles was sealed in them, not only by Jesus' instruction, but by the Spirit of God himself. And so Jesus, who is God in the flesh, gave his authority to his disciples, then the apostles, and now us, who then, filled with the Spirit, took the truth of Jesus and wrote God-inspired letters to the church that we still have today and are still true today. This is incredible. Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest peoples, Peter, who was there with Jesus when all of this went down, when Jesus was saying these things. Peter then confirms that one of the other New Testament authors, Paul the Apostle, who actually a lot of progressive Christians re reject wholeheartedly. They're like, that's so Pauline. That, we, don't, we don't listen to the, that guy. He's very Western thinking. He's, very, he's different. Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, if you will, said this about Paul. Paul's words are authoritative and trustworthy in his epistles. This is the apostolic authority that's passed from Jesus to Peter to the other apostles and ultimately to Paul that we find now in our scriptures. There's authority in the scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this in authority, by the way, inspired by the Spirit of God. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, sure. Go read Romans if you want to see if Paul is sometimes hard to understand. There are some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. This is what Paul was writing about in 
that first scripture that I read to you in Colossians, don't be taken captive by those twisted, deceptive philosophies. There are those who are ignorant and unstable that are twisting to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And then he instructs us, and I think this instruction is for us right now the same. We, should, we need to receive this almost prophetically like, yes, Lord, speak to us in this moment. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge, the love and truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. You know, here at Northwood Church, we exist to build Christ-centered communities that help people know God, grow in Christ, grow in Christ, and then go in the power or authority of the Holy Spirit until Jesus returns. That's our mission here. And we base our mission ultimately in the truth of the scriptures that are reliable and authoritative in our lives. As a matter of fact, we'd say it like this. We believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and therefore it is the reliable truth for our lives. Friends, this truth is truth that leads to life. The truth in the scriptures tell us of a Jesus who loved us so much that he came from heaven to earth in flesh to empathize with us, to take on himself the penalty of sin and death, to heal us, to forgive us, to restore right relationship with us that was broken in the garden, now restored and reconciled through Christ our Savior on that cross. This is the truth that we hold fast to. If it's not true, what do we have to hope in? There's nothing left to talk about. There's nothing to even live for. This truth is life. And the call on our lives today is surrender. Surrender to the authority of the word of God in your life, ultimately to the authority of Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, we just come before you. We thank you for this, this truth. We thank you for your word that is everlasting and a firm foundation for our faith. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that seals these truths in our hearts that helps us receive the authority of the word and that helps us to walk in the authority of the word. God, for us that believe this, Lord, would you just fill us fresh and anew with your spirit that we, we would be just increased in our faith right now that we'd hold fast to the confession of our faith, that we would not be turned to the left or the right by the deceptive winds of doctrine that, that, that come to us from the world, from progressive thinking, Lord, that we would be rooted and anchored in the, the historical, true Jesus that taught us the words of life. Help us, Lord. Help us to be loving as a response to the grace that we've received in Christ Jesus, that we would know that though we believe this truth, that just because others don't doesn't mean that we're any better than them. We thank you for giving us revelation, God, but we're asking that you would take those people that don't yet have this revealed truth of Jesus and his authority and the authority of the word, God, that they would have the same grace that you've so patiently poured out on us. God, if there's anyone in this room right now, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to this truth. I just want to talk to you if you're in this room right now and you've never been able to put your trust in this, this things I've said today. I just, I just want to ask you to ask God, like I did 15 years ago, ask God, will you just help me believe this? Say it. God, help me believe this. Open my heart. I genuinely want you to be my authority. I genuinely want you to be my Lord. That's your prayer. Surrender. And he'll pour his forgiveness out on you. Lord, for those that are in this room right now, that's what you're doing in their heart, Lord. You're opening their heart up to believe this truth, to receive this truth. Lord, I pray that you pour your grace and forgiveness out on them, that they would know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and that you would reveal your love, your compassion, your mercy for them. That they would receive healing and salvation in Jesus' name. Father, for all of us today, as 
as we get ready to go back into the song. As a matter of fact, church, I just want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to get ready to go back into the song. Lord, I pray that, that, we, would, that we would worship in spirit and truth, that we would be built up in not only the logic of our faith, but the love of our faith, and that we would carry this truth back to our homes, to our families, to our workplace this week with, with just a, a deep sense of conviction, but also a deep sense of compassion for those that don't know this truth and that we would love them truthfully. God, help us to walk in truth. Lord, for those that are struggling with disbelief in this room today, God, I pray as the prayer team is up here during uh, this last song, Lord, God, that, that people will come and receive prayer and that you would answer that prayer, God. You are faithful to do that. Lord, I thank you that you're answering our prayers, that you hear us now. And so as we lift up this song, Lord, we just believe that you're going to speak even one word, one word over our lives that will birth faith that leads to either salvation or a, an increased confidence in who you are and what you're doing. You are our authority. You rule. You reign in our lives. And we surrender to you now in Jesus' name. Let's worship Jesus.